it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. So that's my job. What if I don't do my job well? I need to hear that from you. If I give advice or information that just doesn't seem to hit the mark, I give an opinion that you feel is just flat wrong, or you feel when I was speaking with somebody, I wasn't hearing them well. I need to hear that from you. And we have an easy way for you to do it. If you go to Clark.com, you can go to Clark Stinks, and you can post where you feel I didn't deliver. And other people get to read it. They can comment on it, agree, disagree, whatever. And then once a week, producer Krista goes through your posts on Clark Stinks and shares highlights here on the air. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right. The first Clark Stinks today is about Clark Stinks. Dear Clark, I absolutely love your show, but the Clark Stinks segment is getting a little gross. Some listeners seem to be in, comp- in a competition to see who can start their posts with the most disgusting descriptions of how you smell. <laughs> they use examples of like a dirty diaper, old gym socks, etc. <laughs> I'm pretty squeamish, so I wish Krista would leave out the graphic intros and, and just do the questions and the important parts. Thanks for all you do. Well, you know, the people that, that write those, they, they work hard at coming up with a different way of saying I stink. And the idea of this segment is to be lighthearted and a teaching moment at the same time. So let them have their fun. Just plain wrong about gas. I was on the air with Clark to ask how he felt about debit cards from Target and Uber. The red debit card got a thumbs up, but Clark said he prefers the Costco slash Sam's Club cards for gas. Sorry, Clark, but I think driving your Tesla so long has made you forget how buying gas works. The cheapest gas is sold is almost always cash or debit only. If I buy a gallon for $3.89 and use a card that gets a 5% cash back, it's still $3.64 a gallon, where the cheapest gas station is $3.29. With my Uber Visa debit, I get a 1.5% cash back for a net of $3.24. The Uber Visa debit is the only card I've heard of that gives cash back on gas when used as a debit card with a PIN, so it works almost everywhere. It also gives 2% back at Walmart, and it's free to anyone who drives for Uber even once. I hope this helps. Interesting post, and I'm guessing our poster is from California, because the prices of gasoline stated sound like California gas prices, which are generally about a dollar higher than the rest of the mainland United States. Californians have to pay for everything at higher rates. It's crazy. Well, but here's the wrinkle that really made me think California. Arco stations, which are the bargain stations in a lot of California, don't accept credit cards. And you have to use a debit card with a pen at an Arco station. And so in that particular circumstance... What the poster has said would be true. And I'd love for them to write back and confirm that my theory is right, that they're a Californian using ARCO as the way to save. Clark, I know it's been pointed out before, but it looks like you're at it again. Set IRAs are terrible options for any business with employees unless that employer can afford to be the most generous employer on earth. You said on 
the June 14th podcast that an employee can choose to contribute almost any amount to a SEP IRA and the owner in this call could contribute huge amounts. The employer must contribute to the same percentage of his own earnings and employee earnings. So if he puts 20% in 20% of his earnings, he must do 25% for every single employee that qualifies. Yes, actually more for the employees due to some odd calculations. The 401k or the simple IRA are the only options that work for an employer to contribute to his or her own retirement without putting huge amounts into the employee accounts as well. I still say the simple is much easier and cheaper to run than a 401k, but that's a debate for a different day. Either of these are great options, but the SEP is not. My rule of thumb, SEP equals zero employees. A simple, one to about 10 employees. A 401k, about 10 or more employees. Brian Alvarez in Portland, Oregon. Brian, thank you for that. So uh, I agree with you that the SEP works best when there's just one employee. I would say that with the ability for you to have an elimination period of three years, if you have meaningful turnover among your employees, you would have a very small pool of people that you would need to cover with the SEP contributions. And it's completely your option. The simple, the which is different than the SEP, even though the SEP is called the Simplified Employee Pension, the simple has a fair amount of paperwork involved. It can be a hassle. And so uh, you have to be in a position to be able to handle that paperwork year after year with the simple. The thing that is true is that we have unnecessarily complicated saving for retirement in the United States, and the whole process needs to be simplified. In a recent response to a caller, Clark implied that once a child leaves home for college, they no longer have to pay for auto insurance. In most cases, the insurer will give a discount if the, only if the child goes to college over X miles from home. X depends on the insurer. They give no break if your child goes to a local community college. Also, the child needs insurance when they get come home on weekends and summer slash winter breaks. And it's not a good idea to stop insuring your child because most insurers will penalize their customers for a lapse in insurance. Sam from Roxbury, New Jersey. Sam, thank you. And I'm so sorry you're in one of the most expensive places in the United States for auto insurance. So you are right. And you may have heard a segment where I did not explain, as I've explained in the past, that with a lot of insurers, it's a 200-mile threshold that your child needs to be away. Others use the, a different number, but 200 is most common. And so if a child's going to what I call sleepaway college, a good distance from home, you can have them removed and only listed as an occasional driver. And that is a big help with most insurers and what premiums you'll have to pay. If uh, I was not complete enough in the segment you heard, I apologize. Clark, I noticed a few weeks ago you said you shouldn't buy a Wise Cam on Amazon as they're more expensive there. I thought this was interesting, so I checked it out. My brief searches revealed the price on Amazon for the Wise Cam pan was $37.98, while the advertised price on the Wise Cam website was $29.99. After adding the Wise Cam pan to my cart on their website, it showed an added cost of $7.99, bringing the total to, to $37.98, the same as Amazon. Oh, what, same price. <laughs> uh, the same situation is true for the regular WiseCam as well. This means if you're an Amazon Prime member, as I am, and many of my fellow listeners are, 
You pay the same price on both sites, but instead of four to seven day shipping on the Y site, you get two day prime shipping on Amazon. You definitely don't stink, Clark, and I love listening to your show, but I wanted to let you and your listeners know about this small mistake. I appreciate that. And one thing that gets glossed over when we talk about the Wisecam is to just think about how unbelievably inexpensive they are to anybody else's cameras with free storage with Wisecams. So the basic Wisecam is 20, the fancy one is 30 plus shipping, or you do Amazon for more with either of them coming out to apparently net the same price. And those prices, compared to any other home or small business security solution, are the best out there. Clark's consumer advice is great, but his tech support, not so much. For example, for the last several weeks, the Google Home Speaker plays the Joe Rogan Experience podcast when asked to play the Clark Howard podcast. It's not just me. Several people have reported it to Google Blogs. I've reported on Clark's website's issues forum, which is the closest thing I can find to submitting a trouble report since there's no contact us address and I called the Consumer Action Center and there was no follow-up. Clark, you complain about customer no service all the time. How about your stinky mechanism for trouble with technical problems related to your own service? All right, I'm going to let you talk yes. about this in a second, Krista. I, this is I try me. my Google Home speaker every day to see if this problem has been fixed. The problem seems to be at Google is best we can figure out. We, you know, it's so, it's like really, it's so strange. Um, Google can't seem to figure it out. They say their engineers are working on it. We've tried a few other things. We've done tons of research to try to figure it out. So hopefully we're going to have a solution soon, but it's very frustrating for us too. And we have heard from several listeners and we've told them we're working on it. I'm sorry that we didn't get back to you because that's not acceptable. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's just so weird, but you can listen to the podcast through lots of other ways, um, like the the website Clark.com. You know, we've got it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, S- Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can get the Clark Howard podcast. So, uh, again, our apologies. It's something that's been frustrating us as much as it's frustrating you. Okay, Clark. Why do you do what you do? Because you love and care about others and you want to make the world a better place as one team on this earth together. You, your team, and your listeners are all humans. We are driven by attitude. The most important investment is attitude, not deals on objects, cameras, insurance, etc. There are ways to empower people so their attitude increases in value. Word choice is very tricky at times not to hurt feelings, but you and your team can totally do it and it will be a booster shot to making the world an even better place. Thanks for everything you and your awesome team do. And I'll just tell you, Clark, we do occasionally get complaints about the Clark Deal site that we're promoting commercialism and people buying stuff. So the reason we offer Clark Deals is I have always been known as a guy going back way before I was in broadcast as a guy who could ferret out bargains, ferret out deals and travel and other things as well. And so that lives on now in Clark deals. And so, as I have said, and if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know my thing is always have your own house in order first. And always, in the old expression, pay yourself first. Save, save, save. As long as you're living on less than what you make, if you want to treat yourself to a deal you find, fine. 
But if you are living on fumes, you don't have any emergency money, you don't have any plan to save for the long term, then striking out to buy a deal because of that adrenaline rush you get a deal is digging you a deeper hole. It always needs to start with living on less than what you make. And you think about the whole goal of our show so that you keep more of what you make. So you got a beef with me? Please go to Clark.com, go to Clark Stinks, and let me know. Ann is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ann. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. Ann, you got some uh, puzzle pieces you want me to put together for you about having real estate and all different purposes. I'm hoping so. So I'm a really regular listener. So I do know that you can no longer move into your rental property to avoid paying capital gains taxes when you sell it. But what about a second home? So if we sold our primary home and then moved into our vacation home for two years, are we still going to have to pay capital gains taxes when we sell it? So this is an area that has become clear as mud. So um, I find it so difficult to answer this with with total definition, but I want you to repeat what you said up front, or we need to discuss that first, because most people don't know that the rules change and you can't take an investment property, turn it into a personal property, and then ultimately be able to sell it tax-free like you used to. and. Right. The formula for determining the tax is really crazy if you've read some of that. I have. Yeah, so there's ratios and uh, based on the number of years, the property was each purpose and all that. And do you know when it's reversed, it still can be tax-free as long as you hit the right check marks where you can take a personal residence and then for a while make it a a rental property and still be able to sell it tax-free? Is that if you're if you've lived there two of the last five years? Exactly. But with a second home, a vacation home, I have that's something that's been a particular interest to me, and I haven't been able to find uh, exactly how I would be treated in that case with uh, true definitive numbers. And so, if is this a real scenario in your life where you're thinking of moving? into a property that's been a vacation home and make it your permanent full-time residence? It is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to retire, and we are going to become nomads in the, in the near future. But if we sell our primary home and we move into the vacation home um, during that first couple of years of transition, it could save us a lot of money if we don't have to pay the capital gains. We've owned the house for 30 years and so it's it's appreciated a lot and if we can avoid that big tax bill i'd love to um but i don't know you know i i've been searching the internet as well and couldn't find anything well so my let I'd me tell you my under, let me tell you my understanding and in the case of your specific situation do you have a cpa who does tax for you or an enrolled agent or somebody you go to to do your taxes okay we do so here's the free advice and then go get the paid advice but my understanding is that it's a ratio formula as well when a vacation home becomes your principal residence that you take the number of years 
that it will have been your vacation home and then down the road when you might sell it the number of years that it's been your personal residence and that ratios out to how much of the 250 500 exclusion you're eligible for okay so it sounds like we'll likely still have to um, give uncle sam a good chunk of the of the gain well if you've got a lot of gain and you don't live in it for a long time as a principal residence you can still look at it as a good thing that you made money instead of lost money absolutely but before you make that move please talk with the with the cpa or whoever it is who is your tax professional just to confirm that my free advice was worth more than zero will do thank you sure have a great day you too great to have you here on the clark howard show where you learn ways to keep more of what you make if you've listened to me for any number of years you know my obsession and it is an obsession with taking time off i work i work a lot but at the same time i know i'm only effective when i have time off and joel and kim if they would be honest with you would tell you that if i've been working too hard for too long i become a grouch and i'm not as good at what i do as i am when i have chill time are you each willing to say that's true sure yeah right when you come back from a restful vacation you're like a hundred percent yourself you're the best version of yourself possible but if i that i love the way see kim you just (laughs) said it joel had to kiss up and say the best ever so what am i when i start when the tank gets empty am i not grouchy you can say it joel you can say it I, you know, I, honestly, you're. I don't think of you as grouchy ever. I think I do. <laughs> I think I, you know what it is. It's like your battery gets worn down, and you're just not as sharp as normal. And that's that. Yeah, that's the biggest thing I notice. And, and pretty cranky. Cranky. Yeah. <laughs> right. See, thanks, Kim. And so you're both right. But the thing is, is it's not just me. It's all of us. And now I can back it up with some meat on the bones. There was a university study done that at a business school that found that if you work at it too hard and too long, listen to what happens to you versus your peers who have similar jobs, similar education. You're going to have poorer health, inferior career prospects, You're going to have lower satisfaction, a lower chance of promotion than people who know to dial back. And listen, this was published in, of all places, the Financial Times of London, which is all about people who celebrate working every day of the year, including Christmas, and if you know the British-Canadian system, Boxing Day, too, that they work 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 and work but the reality is you're better at what you do if you don't work yourself to being grouchy or cranky or whatever word it was Kim used for me and so or being the best you you can ever be 
What a kiss up, Joel. Anyway, so I want you to think this through. If you're somebody who's on the hamster wheel and you feel like you got to please that boss or whatever, and you got to work, work, work. Well, a boss who doesn't respect you having personal boundaries and personal time and chill time is a boss who's going to stab you in the back someday anyway because they are lacking some basic humanity. Take care of yourself. Be human and humane to yourself. Be respectful to yourself and know that if you want to get ahead, you know that life is a marathon, not a sprint. Don't always want to be out of breath, trying to sprint every moment of your life. Ed is with us on the Clark Howard Show. How are you, Ed? Great, Clark. It's a real honor to speak to you. I have listened to you for a very long time, and I take your advice on a lot of things, and um, I, um, especially on this, I'm really interested in what you have to um, say about my uh, lease program that I'm um, with right now that matures in February of 2019. What, are we a, talking about an apartment lease or a car lease or what kind? I'm sorry. It's a uh, Honda Civic. Um, I, I purchased it in 2015, and the lease matures in February of next year. So a four-year lease. And well, it actually the 39-month lease. Oh, 39 well, you have, right. you have, with that Honda Civic, one of the most reliable of all vehicles on the road, one that holds book value better than most any other, and one that people, uh, many people are proud of driving their Civics till they have to leave them at the side of the road 20 years after they got it. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a car that people buy... They say this about Honda and Toyota buyers, that they make reliable cars for people who don't really like cars. The idea meaning that people want something that just works. Right. And so yeah. have you have you been pleased with the Civic? Yes, very much so. In fact, my thoughts are that I would like to purchase it, and we have enough money um, that we should have by um, November of this year, which leads me to my question. If I have enough money ahead of when the lease is coming due, do, does it make sense to purchase it ahead of time? And I know the cost from what I'm seeing it seems to be a couple thousand dollars higher than if I waited till February. Or am I better off waiting till February and hopefully negotiate? Um, I don't know if that's even something that can be done, too, if there's anything we can negotiate. Yeah, those are great questions. So on a typical auto lease, you're best off waiting until the end of the lease and execute okay. the purchase of it, either A, under the terms of the residual value you have to pay, or B, negotiating possibly a lower value than that residual that you'd have to buy it for. So what I'd like for you to do is, you know the vehicle, which automatically 
makes it worth more to you than another 39-month-old Civic. Right. Because you know you've been driving it. You know you're either treating it like a baby or you're treating it terribly. You know. And when you buy a, a used car of the same age, you really don't know its history. I mean, you can do the steps I recommend, but it's, you're not going to know it the same. So it's weird, but I think that a car that you can buy that was yours and you know its history is worth even a little more than a car you would buy just on your own that's 39 months old. Sure. And but, it only has 17,000 miles. I know it's... Oh, you got to you know, buy it. Got to buy it for the residual. Now, okay. w- would they even consider negotiating with me? Could I... A higher been- price... Because if you've only got really? 17,000 miles on it, okay. they're looking at it, wow, we cannot wait for Ed to turn this vehicle in because <laughs> we're going to score big money on it because instead of using, do you have like a forty, uh, 36,000 mile allowance on it or something like that? Right. And you've only used 17? I mean, that is a sweet deal for them if you turn it in. It's a much sweeter deal for you just to buy it at the agreed-to residual. Now, let me tell you one wrinkle to this. Was the lease done by Honda, Honda's own credit arm, or was it done by a bank? I believe it was Honda. In fact, I have it in front of me. It's Honda Leadership Leasing. Okay. So they're, they, in order not to alienate their dealers, they're generally not going to negotiate with you because... Part of their deal with the dealers is these cars end up back on their lots so they can sell. It would be an unusual okay. situation that Honda would negotiate. I mean, you can always try. If they say no, you say, ah, well, I, I offered them less, but they wouldn't take it. And then you just buy it for the residual. That's a great car to just buy at the end of the lease. Would they negotiate anything as far as I know there's a fee that um – that we have to pay at the end is that something that's negotiable you potentially know, yes and that. what you do is you contact them six weeks out from six when the when the lease is up next year you say hey we're trying to decide if we're going to keep this or we're going to turn it back in and i've checked and it's worth so and so if it's worth less on edmonds and kelly blue book you know i've checked and it seems to be worth less than what the residual is can we negotiate on this just do your homework before you make that call six weeks out. And they may okay. even make you a different offer one week out than they'll make six six weeks out. But um, the more homework you do on what the fair market value seems to be, if it's showing lower than that residual at Edmonds and Kelly Blue Book, then you potentially have better ability to negotiate. Good luck with it. Jeff is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Clark. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Certainly. Um, I, I really appreciated your message a little while ago about uh, about taking time off. Um, that that uh, finding balance is really key. Uh, okay, I'm leaving right now. Thank you for permission. No, I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so my question has to do with the roof. Uh, uh, we have to get a uh, our roof redone. Um, it's pretty old. It's over 20 years. And um, we're looking at traditional shingles versus metal and wondering 
um, because the price difference, metal seems to be twice the cost. Um, is that really worth it? To Yeah, I've, uh, I used to own a home with a metal roof, and uh, installed properly, a metal roof is great because the longevity you get out of it, and uh, you know, in a heavy rain, you may hear noise that would bother you, but the metal roofs are um, are something that has increased in popularity because they should last for the for as long as that house lasts. Mm-hmm. So they well, have plan on being there for a while, so that makes sense. Yeah, and so. The thing is, the you know the company that installs it may give you whatever warranty. They may not even be around far from <laughs> now if you have a problem sure. with it. But as long as they do it right and you want lots of references, you want to go visit with people who they've done work for, uh, have them tell you what it's like and what they... And one question, you always ask somebody who's done a metal roof, would you do it again? Mm-hmm. And so it is an opportunity for you to do it. Now, one thing, a lot of people in roofing believe that you can put a metal roof right over the existing roof without having to go through all the demolition you normally do if you replace a normal roof with, uh, you know, roofing shingles. Mm-hmm. And so that's a time-saving, and that is something... You could consider would that. Uh, would it make a difference if we're wanting to put solar on there later as well? Yeah, that would be a big problem. I don't think you're putting solar on a metal roof. Not that I've well, from seen. What I understand the uh, mounting is much simpler on a standing seam metal roof. I have uh, never heard that. Okay. So I shouldn't have even said that because <laughs> that's never anything that, that's ever been on my radar. Okay. But, but we really did enjoy having the home with the metal roof and not having to worry about it and know that there wasn't like a clock ticking when the roof was going to have to be redone. You didn't happen to notice any significant um, savings in, in power. I mean, we live in, in Florida. so AC, I didn't notice any AC savings monster. in power. Didn't <laughs> okay. notice any. So I, right. I, I wouldn't say it's for that. It's aesthetic. You, you like the look and that you're willing to lay out that money. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, one thing you could do, call your homeowner's insurer, talk mm-hmm. to an adjuster and find out from the hurricanes that Florida has seen, were the metal roofs more durable than the traditional shingle roofs? That's a good point. Citizens will probably know. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good idea. They may even encourage you to do one or the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll check on that. Our uh, insurance is coming due soon anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, best to you. And uh, I hope you don't mind that upfront cost because it is a lot higher. Justin joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Justin. Hey, Clark, how you doing? Great, thank you. Justin, you got a car that seems to be a money pit, huh? Well, no, not quite yet. It's actually been quite reliable, but I'm wondering, is there a certain percentage of a car's value where you should uh, stop putting money into it? I I have a a five-year-old hybrid vehicle that has proven very reliable for me with 120,000 miles, 
And uh, coming in the years to come, I'll be driving about 30,000 miles a year. And the dealership has said to me that its battery may need replacing soon, and it has a sticker value of $3,000. And the value of the car is only between seven dollars and $8,000. And I was wondering, you know, considering the amount of miles I drive, if it was worth putting into well, I mean, first of all, the dealer telling you that the battery pack in a hybrid is, you know, only has so much life remaining, I would say drive it and let's see. Because I've had hybrids over the years. I've never had a hybrid battery pack degrade. Okay. And which hybrid do you have? I have a Toyota Prius. So the Prius batteries have proven to be enormously reliable you don't have the plug-in the prime you have the regular hybrid right correct correct yeah Yeah, you drive that thing and let them prove to you there's something wrong with that battery till you do anything about replacing it okay but in general do you find a percentage where you should no longer make repairs on vehicles yeah when the cost of the repair exceeds the remaining value of the vehicle that would be the point at which you say i give up oh i see okay all right fantastic but, i appreciate but it but i know of no history of people's battery packs and the hybrids deteriorate in the prius hybrids deteriorating and failing at any great rate at an early mileage cycle they tend to last well more than a decade I was told that the average is about 137 miles, and uh, I was approaching that quickly, and so I just wanted some idea of of, uh, how to handle that when the time arises. Well, now that you've said that, Justin, we're going to hear from Prius owners who say, I don't know what they're talking about. I have 500,000 miles on my Prius and things like that, because that is news to me that you would be told that there's premature fail or wear on those hybrid batteries. If you look online and just look around what people are saying about it, you'll see that that, if that was ever to happen to somebody's Prius, it would be a very odd, unusual circumstance. Okay. Well, great. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You enjoy that thing. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for tuning into the Clark Howard Show today. And if you're like me, you like deals, well, we got our deal diggers hard at work at ClarkDeals.com that help you save money day in and day out. We work around the clock to find the best deals for your wallet. And they're on a variety of consumer items. Check out ClarkDeals.com.